I want to thank you for joining us this morning and being a part of our journey to Easter as we encounter Jesus on the way to the cross. We're encountering Jesus on the way to the cross, and what we've been doing starting last week is we're taking an expanded view at the Holy Week. We're taking an expanded view at the Holy Week, so what I want to do is I just want to take a minute to explain where we are, just wrapping up his earthly ministries where we're kind of catching up with Jesus. He is wrapping up this earthly ministry and he's in the, really the last eight days of his earthly life. He's closing in on Jerusalem for the Passover at the end of Matthew chapter 20. By the way, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 today, so if you want to open your Bibles there, that would be great. <clears throat> but as he's in Matthew chapter 20, he heals two men of blindness in Jericho. Shortly after that, you pick up in Luke chapter 19, if you're going chronologically, and he meets this short little fellow named Zacchaeus, and he has a life-changing, life-altering experience with Zacchaeus. He goes from there, and he heads into a town called Bethany. Now, Bethany is where his close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are residing, and he goes and he hangs out with them. Many theologians believe this day is Saturday. And this is Saturday night that he's staying now with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. On Sunday morning, he wakes up and there's a huge crowd outside that want to see both him and Lazarus. Because he'd healed Lazarus, he'd brought him back from the dead, and people, the word had gotten around that Jesus had done it. They wanted to see Lazarus, they wanted to see Jesus. At the same time, there was religious leaders that were there. And those religious leaders actually wanted to kill Lazarus because he was a testimony of what Jesus could do in a life. So Jesus basically spends that Sunday with the, the crowds and, and is teaching them and doing different things. He goes back into the, the house. He hangs out with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, goes to sleep, gets some rest. Monday comes, and Monday is actually what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. And that is when he sends the two disciples ahead to find the young colt, we talked about it last week, that triumphal entry, all the details with it. And Jesus fulfills the prophecies from 500 years prior as he's doing all of this. He goes back to Bethany that night. He's hanging out with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus again. And he gets up on Tuesday morning. As he gets up on Tuesday morning, he goes into the temple. We know what we talked about last week with the cleansing of the temple. And in the cleansing of the temple, he gets all the garbage out. He cleans everything up. And I'm not sure about you, but sometimes when I need to get down to business at home, when I need to sit down and really focus, the first thing I have to do is I have to clean up the house. Because if there's stuff that's out of order, I can't quite focus on where I need to be at. I think that's why Jesus cleans the temple on Tuesday because as we're going to see on Wednesday, he goes back on Tuesday night, back to Bethany, comes back on Wednesday, he walks by that fig tree, he curses the fig tree, uses an example of having the appearance of having fruit but having no fruit and being empty, goes in to now take care of business in that same temple he cleansed the day before. And he goes in and he's going to confront the religious leaders. And that's where we find ourselves today. It is Wednesday morning. And this confrontation with these religious leaders begins in the passage we talk about today. It's going to be Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. But it will carry on 
all the way to the end of Matthew chapter 23. I had you read this week, maybe you saw it, but I had you read all of chapter 22. I didn't have you read chapter 23, not to overwhelm you, but 23 is really all the woe to you hypocrites, and Jesus just really lays the wood on them, and we'll talk a little bit more about that today as well. But as we look We're only going to focus, I said up front, on four verses. We're going to focus on five. I'm going to add just one extra one in for you. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. And this is the precursor to all of the things that are going to happen for the rest of 22 and for 23. See, as Jesus is beginning to talk and as Jesus is beginning to confront them, the religious leaders that are there feel this sweet burning anger towards Jesus that will eventually, through 22 and 23, lead to Jesus' crucifixion. So if you have your Bibles open, Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 23, it says these words. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, and this is a word that I, these three words are the ones I have underlined in my Bible. By what authority? By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you also one question. And if you answer it for me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's my question. Did John's baptism come from heaven or was it of human origin? Well, they discussed it amongst themselves. I'm not sure if you're a Saturday Night Live coffee talk person. They'd go just discuss it amongst yourselves kind of thing here. They discussed it amongst themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you believe him? Or why didn't you believe him? But if we say from a human origin, we will be afraid of the crowd because everyone considers John to be a prophet. So they answer the same answer that every kid gives? I don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority we do these things. Like I said, this is a precursor to all the things that are getting ready to come. So let's just pray that God speaks to us this morning through these five verses. Father, we're so grateful again for what you do. I pray you open hearts. I pray you open minds. I pray you guide us and direct us in the way you'd have us to go. We pray it in your name. Amen. So the word of the day today is authority. Authority. That is a word that is a strong word. It is filled with meaning. It's a word that can draw up all different sorts of emotions and responses from within us. It could be a word that draws up respect. It could be one that brings in the, the, the feeling of awe. It can bring fear. And if we even look at over our last year, it can bring anger. Authority. There are those who follow authority almost blindly. And then there's others that question authority every step of the way. Authority indicates permission. It indicates privilege. It indicates power. It indicates rule. It indicates control. It indicates influence. Authority is responsibility beyond the norm, beyond just the the average people. It is something that we see all over. Some people, they earn it. Some people, they are given it. Other people, they assume they have it. And we have all these different ones all around us, at home, at school, at work, in our cities, in our states, in our nations. It's, It's all around us. But there's one authority that is over all other authorities. And that is the authority that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, when he's beginning what we call the Great Commission. He says these words, all authority 
has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is an amazing claim to privilege. That is an amazing claim to power. That is an amazing claim to permission, right, and rule. But the thing is, is it wasn't something that was just introduced at the end of his ministry. He lived it out throughout his ministry. As a matter of fact, if you look throughout the four Gospels, multiple times it talks about Jesus' authority, and we get into the depth of it. We talked about a little bit of it last week. I'll talk about a little bit more this week. But one of the things I saw, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, the Sermon on the Mount. Towards the end of it, he says that he taught with authority because he didn't quote anybody else. As a matter of fact, Mark chapter 1 also talks about how the fact he didn't quote other rabbis. He had his own authority. He taught truth without having to refer back to somebody else. If you go on in Mark chapter 1, you'll also see that he had the authority to cast out the demons, the, the, the spirits that were, were oppressing that man that was in the graveside area. Uh, you have Matthew chapter 9, where the paralyzed man had come, and the religious leaders were watching. And as he's dealing with this paralyzed man, he tells him to get up and walk, but also he has the authority to forgive their sins. Jumping into that a little bit more, John chapter 1, verse 12, says he had the authority to make people the children of God. John chapter 17, in a prayer to God, he says, I have the authority to give people eternal life. That's a lot of authority. John chapter 10, verse 18, he also said he had the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. Nobody could do that apart from him. Jesus has, and I'll capitalize the word the, the authority. And because of it, it was a problem for the religious system of the day. This is where the confrontation came in. They thought they were the authority. They thought that they had developed their way of doing things, and Jesus was getting in the way of their thinking. He was getting in the way of their routine. He was getting in the way of the way that they had set it up for themselves. He was getting in the way. And you know what he also didn't do? He never went and asked for permission. When he cleansed the temple, he didn't say, hey, Sanhedrin, how exactly should we go about this? No, he just went in there and just took care of business, like we already said. And so in the process of that, they were having a struggle, they being the religious leaders, that God had given him both power and authority. And when we look at the word power, power is the ability to do something. Authority is the right to do it. And Jesus had both. And because Jesus showed this, in his actions, it upset those religious leaders that thought to themselves, we've got to get rid of this guy. There's this constant conflict. And the conflict that was there is this. Jesus and his authority confronted their authority. Jesus and his authority confronted their authority. The reality is they had had their run-ins with Jesus since the very beginning of his ministry. In the very beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, he had cleansed the temple already. The same things were going on. He'd gone in. He'd overturned tables. He'd made whips. He'd done all of the different things. And this caused a problem because it upset the normal. It upset the status quo. So in the process of them doing that, he had started this kind of run-in with the religious leaders and them saying, who is this guy I think he is? Well, he goes and he moves up north to do a lot of ministry up north. So he kind of left everything behind and they could get back to their normal. Jesus came in, just kind of upset a few things, then would leave. Well, it happened multiple times throughout his ministry that that would happen in Jerusalem. He would come and upset that religious system 
and then he would leave so they could get back to normal. Well, this time was gonna be the last time. This time was gonna be the last time, and the problem was is that the religious leaders, they faced this, Jesus comes in, upsets my system, and then finally I can shove him away so I can get back to normal. They aren't the only ones that deal with that. Jesus does that in our daily lives as well. As a matter of fact, I change it from Jesus is in authority confront their authority to his authority confronts my authority. His authority confronts my authority. We've had the saying since the very beginning of Paragon Church. Come as you are, be changed, go change the world. Since the very beginning, that was a statement that was on all of our stuff. Come as you are, be changed, go change the world. Come as you are is easy. It is easy to come exactly as you are to church. The be changed part, that's a little bit more hard, a little bit more difficult. A little bit more, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. But in this story that we see as Jesus comes in, he upsets the normal, he leaves, we go back to normal. Isn't that kind of the way we are? We get confronted by Jesus in some way, some shape, some form, whether it be through a message or through something we've read in Scripture or something happening in our lives and we say, oh God, I've got to repent and I've got to get down on my knees and I've got to get before you. You've overturned the tables in my life and I have to come before you and submit to your authority. And then we get back to normal and we kind of push that authority aside. So the question I think we have today is this. We ask Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you do these things in my life? Who do you think you are to come in and change the way that I live? Who are you to govern me differently? And the bottom line, I think, for us today is this. If we come to the right conclusion today that Jesus is acting in God's authority we'd better submit our lives to him. We'd better submit our lives to him. The problem is, when someone's trying to overthrow authority, and we've seen it even in the news just as recently as countries around the world that are going through all these different things with coups and so on and so forth, when somebody tries to throw over or overthrow the, the th authority, we run into the, who has the right? Who has the right to govern who has the right to work in my life? Who has the right to tell me what to do and how to do it? Have we run into that issue at all in the last 12 months? Th that seems to be where we hang out at, but the thing is, there's an authority greater than even that. The question is, who has the right to govern? The religious leaders ask a very basic question in, in verse 23. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? For the religious leaders who feel like they are in authority, they've assumed they're in authority, it's a valid question to ask. But the problem is, it's based on a false assumption. Anybody know what the word assume broken down means? If I was speaking from the King James today, I'd say it makes a donkey out of you and me. But the reality that we see here is the religious leaders are assuming falsely. They've assumed that they were God's rightly appointed religious authorities. They've been trained. Look where they hang out. They're the ones who lead God's holy temple. They were 
in the place designated specifically for worship. They had assumed this authority and this assumption led to believe or led them to believe, I'm right. And because I'm right, that means you're wrong. I, I know this isn't a struggle still today, but let's look at it from the context of 2,000 years ago, okay? Because we don't deal with this in culture anymore. That Anybody who challenges what is right or the assumed authority is therefore wrong, right? Our very natures, though. We live off of this assumption, don't we? We automatically justify ourselves and we automatically resist anyone who challenges our view to govern our lives. I mean, there's a pretty famous saying that's going on right now and it is, you do you. That says, I'm in charge. And that nobody can step into the way. I will assume that I'm in charge and I know what is best for me. That is how we live. Who does this Jesus character think he is? That he can come into our world, he can overturn tables, both literally and figuratively, and change the way that we've always done things. That's a question that we ask, and that's a question that we see the leaders 2,000 years ago ask. The great thing is, is that Jesus doesn't avoid the answer. He doesn't avoid the question, but how he answers is typical if you look at the way he did ministry. He answered his question with a question. And he said these words, and he forces them into their hands. You guys have to tell me what you think. Did John's baptism come from heaven, or was it of human origin? He's saying there's only two sources of authority. There's either God's authority or there's man's authority. There's God's authority or there's the ones who have basically removed themselves from God, excuse me, God's authority and acted on their own. Now, we're reading from Matthew, but if you go over to Mark chapter 11, verse 30, there's an added two-word sentence that's at the end of this question. You know what it is? Answer me. He's demanding an answer. But why did Jesus ask? Why did he put him in this place? How is he forcing their hands? Well, because John the Baptist had identified Jesus very clearly as the Messiah. And people respected John as a prophet. So, because of this, the religious leaders, they couldn't say that John had come from man's authority or they would be making all these people around him mad. And they were worried about that. But if they claimed John's authority was from heaven, then they'd be guilty of not believing what he said when he said that Jesus was the Messiah. So he had put them in a bit of a bind here, and they knew it. They knew exactly where he was at, so he had taken, Jesus had taken this question about authority and turned it back on them and said, all authority comes from either God or man. What is it that John has? The thing is, is we have the same thing in our lives, don't we? All authority comes from either God or man. Who's the ultimate authority in your life? God or yourself? God or someone else? Who is the ultimate authority? And then he throws in those last two words, answer me. We don't get to just ponder the question and go, oh, that sounds good. I'm going to go eat lunch now and maybe I'll forget about it and I can get back to normal where God has challenged me or turned over those tables. No, he wants an answer. 
So my question for you today is, is how have you answered that question in your life? How have you answered who or what is the ultimate authority? Who is the final authority in your life? Is it your feelings? And if it is, what do you base your feelings on? Is it reason? Again, based on what? Is it scientists? I say science, but we all know that we don't follow the science. We follow the scientist that speaks into what we want. We've seen it way too much. They're not unbiased, and, and it causes issues for how we respond. So who is it? Is it the law? Is that our final authority? Well, unfortunately, law is made by sinful men and upheld by sinful men who, again, don't hold the moral standards of God often, so they are biased. Is it the majority? Do we just go with the majority? And again, what is the majority basing their decisions on? If you were with us a couple weeks ago, we talked about a belt of truth, how it holds everything together. That's it. That's why we talked about it. By what authority? It's a fundamental question of our lives that each and every one of us must answer. And, and we have to say, will you first and foremost live under the authority of God or will you first and foremost live under the authority of yourselves and what you feel and what you believe? It's not an easy question to answer. I mean, we're in church, so Jesus is the answer, but it's not an easy question to actually live out. Maybe that's how I should put it. It's a very tough question because the struggle that we have is real. Living under God's authority means it's going to confront our selfish lives. That, that's the, the struggle we have. His authority will always confront our selfishness. Always. And we begin to look at that and say, well, the religious leaders, they held a place of authority. And he confronted that. Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 23, they record the confrontations of the rest of the day. This was a, a, on Wednesday. This was all 23, all 22 happened on Wednesday. And it was all in response to the questioning of authority. If you read it, you probably read some of the parables. In the first parable, you would have read the parable of the two sons, where one doesn't want to work, but does work. And the other one wants to work or says he's going to, but then doesn't. It's all a question of the authority of dad and how you respond to it. Um, then there's the, the, the parable of the vineyard owner. And it was about where the vineyard owner had hired these servants. They did all the work, but then he sent in his servants to go help collect. They killed those servants. He sent in his son. They killed the son. Again, it's about the authority of the vineyard owner who in the story is God. Then you have the parable of the wedding banquet where people are invited, but only a few choose to come. The authority. Who is the authority? Who makes the decisions? Then you jump into the question of, well, what about the taxes? You give to God what is God's. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We could have gone into it. By the way, each and every one of these are their own sermons, so that's why I'm covering them like in five seconds, okay? Just so you can dive a little bit deeper into it. But you see the question of give to God what is God's, give to Caesar what is Caesar's is all about authority. Then these Sadducees come up with this ridiculous question about, well, what if this guy who uh, dies and had a, a wife, and then she marries each of his seven brothers who all die eventually too. Sounds like that'd be a bad person to be married to, by the way, but th that's a whole nother story in it all. But 
you know, wh what happens in the resurrection time? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection anyway. But what happens in the resurrection? Who's he going to be married to? Or who's she going to be married to? All eight of them? Or, you know, just dumb, ridiculous questions. Once again, trying to question his authority. If you read on, you'll see that in there also is the famous questioning of authority. What is the great commandment? Or what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Again, questioning authority. Who do we give our love to? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to obey? And he answers with that. It's all wrapped around, is it man-centered or is it God-centered? All the woe to use in Matthew 23. Is it God-centered or are you doing it for yourself? Who is the authority? I mean, that's quite a can that he's opened up. A whole can of worms, and it's all over the place. And that can opens up here in chapter 21, when God's authority confronts selfish thinking. When God's authority confronts selfish lives, they were called out by Jesus. But instead of giving over their authority and submitting to him, what'd they do? Well, they wanted to hold on to it because they assumed what they had was theirs to begin with. Crazy thing is, as you begin to see in verse, or sorry, chapter 23, one of the things he's really calling out is that you guys aren't doing this for God. You religious leaders aren't doing this for God. You're not even doing it for your fellow man. You're strictly doing it for yourself. You're strictly doing it for yourself. This is all about personal gain. Your leadership is for you. Here's the crazy thing. It hasn't changed. I see church leaders that do it for themselves. I see political leaders that do it for themselves. There was a whole article that I read this week on how politicians, and I'm not talking Democrat or Republican, how politicians, they get paid $130,000 a year when they go in, but somehow they come out millionaires. Nobody's quite sure on how that happens, or there's no you know, accountability in that. And the reality that we see is they're not there to govern for us and speak our voice. Maybe that was their initial plan, but all of a sudden this extra money starts coming in and it's amazing how money, Jesus talks about being the root, or sorry, the love of money is the root of all evil. And we see that play itself out over and over again. Actually, Jesus wraps up chapter 23 by saying, guys, you're completely and totally out of God's authority. As religious leaders, that should be exactly where you're at, but you're not. He calls them lawless hypocrites. By the authority and power given to him by God the Father, he confronts them in their selfishness. And you know what happens? They get offended. That's a word we like to use today, isn't it? They get hurt. Their feelings are hurt. That How could somebody question why I do what I do? And guess what? Sometimes we respond to our offense or our hurt with response of remorse and repentance or we respond by canceling them. That's the, the word we have a tendency to use even more now too. We don't want that to be a part. We want to shove them off to the side so they can't hurt me anymore. They can't try and put their thinking in my head. Guess what happened just a few days after this Wednesday? Jesus was canceled. They didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like the challenge in his life, so Jesus was canceled. And the sad part of it is, then and even today, they knew God's authority. They just chose 
to rebel against it. They knew the word. They knew what was right. And the thing is, is God's authority comes from his word. I mean, when Jesus goes in and starts tossing over temple or tables in the temple, what's he doing in the process? He's quoting scripture. He says, you guys know that God's house is a house of prayer, but you've changed it into a den of thieves. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. They know exactly what he's talking about. They know these things already, but they didn't want to hear it. How many times has scripture spoken into your life and you didn't want to hear it? Far too often for me. They didn't want to hear it, and even more so, they didn't want it to work in their lives, and they didn't want them or those scriptures to change them. Sometimes God's word points out the things that we do not want to hear. Sometimes God's word comes in and challenges our normal, and sometimes it challenges our status quo, and we don't like it. As a matter of fact, far too often, we only go to the scriptures that we do like. The ones that are going to make us feel better. <coughs> Excuse me. Make us feel better about ourselves. We've been doing the study of judges in our connection group. And judges is about a cycle of Israel loving God and then turning away from God, loving God, turning away from God. Very simplified version of, of that, by the way. But the J.D. Greer, who's the leader in our Right Now Media online study, he calls uh, the study we did this last week hot dog faith. Hot dog faith. And the reason why it's called hot dog faith is because we love hot dogs. I love hot dogs. Uh, they actually had a whole statistic on the amount of Americans that eat hot dogs, and it's crazy. If you put them end to end, they can like, go across around the world, blah, 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 all this kind of thing. It's just on 4th of July. And it, hot dogs are amazing. But the thing is, is I only like specific hot dogs. I like Hebrew National. Go ahead and plug that on YouTube. We'll see if we can get some monetary uh, donations from that. I like Hebrew National because they're kosher, right? And, and they're supposed to be all beef. But if you go down to the ballpark, and by the way, I'm so glad that baseball's kind of starting again, and I say kind of because they're supposed to allow you to go inside, and most people think baseball's boring, but it's a great time to eat hot dogs, okay? And, and the thing is, is the hot dogs that are there aren't that great, they're actually gross, but if you put enough ketchup and mustard on them, you can choke just about anything down. Here's the thing. If you look at the package of a cheap hot dog, these are the things you're going to see on there. The first component is mechanically separated turkey. That's a cheap hot dog, not, not, not your Hebrew nationals. Mechanically separated turkey, which the USA, USDA defines as a paste or batter-like poultry product manufactured by forcing turkey bones with attached edible tissue through a sieve under high pressure. Makes you want to eat a hot dog, doesn't it? It's a process called advanced meat recovery. Mmm. Advanced meat recovery. Shoved into a tube with things like corn syrup, some beef, salt, sodium phosphate, sodium erythobate, sodium nitrate, and don't forget maltodextrin. Basically to say, a cheap hot dog is not pure meat. And probably not good for you. As a matter of fact, let's just lose the word probably. It's not good for you, okay? Let's just call it what it is. 
But here's the thing. Many Americans build their faith like a cheap hot dog. We, we take the little bits of something from this and a little bit of something from that and we mix it with this stuff here and we squeeze it into this thing that we call Christian faith, but really it's probably not good for you. And not even not good for you, it's probably spiritually toxic. We don't want pure meat, which is the word of God. We only want the parts that don't challenge us and don't change us. I remember, I think it was the gym that I worked out at in high school, but it had a sign on the wall that said, if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. If it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. And I think I could take it a step further that if it doesn't confront us in our sins, then we're going to be fine just going with the flow. And there's an old saying that dead fish flow downstream. We're okay with just not being challenged. Unfortunately, we have too many churches that don't challenge people to confront their sins. Instead, they actually accept it and they celebrate it. We twist God to conform us into what we want him to be instead of having ourselves be changed to conform to what he wants us to be. I received a text this last week from a member of our Paragon faith family telling about a church in Nashville, and I'm not going to give you any more details on that, but it has openly moved to a progressive Christianity, and I checked out their website, and it's, it's ridiculous. But this is one of the responses in their discussion on a Instagram feed that said this, and I put the hand palm there, and uh, Dolly has a whole different thing for what that actually is, but ch check out what it says here. As progressive Christians, we're open to the tensions and inconsistencies in the Bible. We know that it can't live up to the impossible modern standards. They should stop right there, but they didn't. We strive to more clearly articulate what Scripture is and isn't. The Bible isn't the Word of God, self-interpreting, a science book, an answer rule book, or inerrant or infallible. The Bible instead is a product of community, a library of text, multivocal, a human response to God, and living and dynamic. The only thing I think they got right is the stuff they're tying at the bottom. But all these red X's, not so much. You know why they have the red X's? Because the red X's might actually challenge you to change. Might actually hold you accountable to sin. So we're going to get rid of those and we're going to become progressive and we're going to become love. People have misinterpreted and misdefined the word love. I love my kids more than anything else on this planet. But I will tell you what, when they step out of line, I'm going to love them with a punishment. We tend to think that love has no punishment. And so we remove the things that might cause us to be punished or challenged or changed. The church has adopted a cultural view of God instead of God's view of God from God's word, because God's word has that authority. The reason why the church and many like this one here exist is the cultural view of Christianity is what we call a TED talk. They get some great entertaining musicians at the beginning, great entertaining musicians at the end, and a feel-good message in between. It's about how I feel good about who I am. It's about being affirmed in who I am. But even as we talked just a couple of weeks ago, with the sword of the spirit being the word of God, it penetrates the heart, it penetrates the soul, it splits 
the, the, the seems it gets right in there. And Paul talks about it with Timothy. In his second letter to him, one of his last letters written, 2 Timothy 3.16, he's challenging Timothy to say these things. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. What's that next word? For rebuking. For correcting. For training in righteousness. And then Paul continues just a few verses later in that second letter of t- to Timothy in verses two and three of chapter four. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, by their own authority, they'll multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They have an itch to hear what they want to hear. And my authority, I don't need somebody else telling me what to do or how to change. They have an itch to hear what they want to hear. You do you. It's all about you. You live your truth. Can I just be blunt? Not that I haven't been the entire message already. That's bogus garbage. Okay, we're just going to call it what it is. That is trash. That is selfishness oozing from the mouths of leaders more concerned about what man thinks about them than what God thinks about them. That is a problem. Our tables that are in our temple need to be tossed over. They need to be flipped over. And this is a thought that I had after we talked last week. I think most of the money changers that were in the temple and the people that were selling were just doing what they'd always done. They didn't even really think they were doing anything wrong because the leaders didn't challenge them in any way until Jesus came into their lives. And here's the thing that I was thinking about. What response, if you've always done things this way, what response are you gonna have when somebody says, you gotta change it, we're flipping this stuff over? What's your response? The same response I would have is, by what authority do you think you're doing to come in and change the way I've lived my life always? My daily way of living has always been this way. By what authority can you come in here and upset everything? And Jesus answered that question. By what authority? The question is, is how do we respond to that? Do we submit and say, yes, you are the authority? Or do we rebel and say, I am the authority? How do you respond? Because when God's authority in Christ confronts our selfishness, we must honestly submit to the truth or completely deny it. That's our two choices. If Jesus is God in the flesh, who gave his life for you on the cross, then he is the absolute sovereign Lord and he has every right, the supreme right to rule in your life and in mine. See, when it came to the religious leaders, I love the fact that Jesus pointed it back to John the Baptist. He pointed it back to John the Baptist because if they had accepted John the Baptist's ministry being from God, they would have submitted to it and they would have seen the truth that Jesus is God in the flesh. But the reality here is, is that even as he points back to John, John was widely popular at the time. He had crowds following like crazy, but he pointed away from himself to Jesus because he knew. As a matter of fact, John chapter one, verse 29, he says these words, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And probably one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, John chapter three, verse 30, 
He must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. It's not about me and my authority, it's about Jesus Christ ruling in my life and changing me to be more like him. If those religious leaders had only believed what John was saying, there wouldn't have been this confrontation in believing in who Jesus actually is. And when I say the word believed, if you go back to verse 25 of Matthew 21, it says this, they discussed it amongst themselves and say, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? So they're not just talking about intellectual belief. They're talking that it was a response of the heart, a response of repentance, a response of submission to their lives to what John was teaching. Why do we say that? Well, because in Luke chapter three, verses seven and eight, Luke, or sorry, John is teaching and it's recorded. He says, you have to produce the fruit that is consistent with repentance. And then he says, and don't rely on your old religious background to try and get you into heaven. This is what he's teaching. And then he says, I want you to believe in such a way that you live differently. I want you to believe in such a way that your life is changed. I want you to believe in such a way that you act and react differently. And just a few verses later, in verses 11 through 14 in Luke chapter 3, he says, this is what you should look like. You should be generous towards the poor. You, you should be honest in your business dealings. You should be content with what you have. You should be changed because Jesus is the one governing or the authority in your life. This is what it should look like. Jesus the authority, not your feelings, not your culture, and definitely not the majority. Jesus. Anybody ever prayed the Lord's Prayer before? I think all of us have. Our Father, which art in heaven, if we're going KJV. What's the next word? Hallowed be your name, right? Your name is holy. Do you realize that is not a statement? It's a petition. It's saying something needs to change. If you go and you want to have a bunch of people sign a petition and you take it to your law offices because you want something to change, it's a petition, that prayer. Saying, God, I want you to be holy in my life. I want you to be set apart. I want you to be this, the one who is the authority, not me. That is the prayer that we are praying here. And Jesus says, this is where we have to be at. This is where our heart has to be at. And, and we have to ask because we're constantly in that confrontation. We're constantly fighting. But even here in this passage, when Jesus confronted the religious leaders, what did they do? Did they deal with it honestly? No. They gave the dumbest answer. We don't know. <laughs> yes, they did. They 100% knew. There is no doubt in my mind they just didn't want to deal with the realities of Jesus changing their old ways and Jesus changing their normal. They didn't want that. So they liked their rebellion against God as an authority. So you know what happens? Jesus never answers their question. The confrontation escalates over a handful of chapters and eventually leads to a crucifixion. Canceling Jesus. People really like their normal. They don't want to be challenged. And they definitely don't want to change. I mean, there's that old joke. The only people that like to be changed are babies. Sometimes we have to be changed for the same reason, though, don't we? Because we're full of it. And we have to be changed by God. Do you want to be changed or not?
J.C. Ryle wrote a commentary on this particular passage in the Gospels and he wrote something now that I wanted to read to you. The ruin of thousands is simply this, that they deal dishonestly with their own souls. They allege pretended difficulties as the cause of their not serving Christ while in reality they love darkness rather than light and have no honest desire to change. Where are you? You don't have to answer me. But when Christ says it in Mark 11.30, answer me. Where are you? Have you been challenged this morning? Throughout all week reading this, I've been challenged. The question is, is, it's great to be challenged, but do you have the desire to change? Or even more so than just a desire, do you have the willingness to do something about it? Because I can walk into a gym and say, gosh, I really don't like what's going on here. There's a lot of extra pandemic that's hanging out in this general vicinity. I would like to get that gone. I can go into a gym. I can look around and be like, that treadmill would probably work, and so would that one. And also that weight machine, all those things would probably work. And if I just turned around and walked away, who cares? If I had the desire, even if I walked in the building, it's got to be about change. Jesus needs to have the authority. Will you give it to him? Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for who you are. And thank you for the way you continue to work in our lives. Thank you for the opportunity, even God, to, to dive deeper into your word and, and for you to challenge our hearts, for you to challenge our minds. But God, even in that challenging, we, we saw you confront and challenge the religious leaders and they responded in rebellion. God, today, we have the option to respond. Either by responding with, yes, God, change me, even if it hurts, even if I'm offended, or with, I'm going to continue to rebel and live my own life. You've put the ball in our court, but you've asked us to answer you. Today, we come before you, and we want to answer you. I pray, God, that in through all of this, it's not my words, but yours that are changing our hearts to become more like you. We pray in your name.